0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about drama without a script. Around the world in recent days, it's turned into football season, and I say let the games begin. can hear inappropriate conversations on stitcher smart radio stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iphone android phone kindle fire and beyond on demand and on the go don't have stitcher download it for free today at stitcher.com or in the app stores stitcher smart radio the smarter way to listen to radio There are a couple of things that I wanted to cover before I got into the main topic for today, because this is going to be essentially a fairly lighthearted version, a less serious, inappropriate conversation. First thing is I'm getting ready for episode number 100. I intend for it to be a look back, not just at the evolution of inappropriate conversations, but my online experience, my interaction with podcasts altogether. I know I'll be playing clips and also at least one audio comment. But before I get into the lighter, sort of, you know, less weighty sports sort of a topic, let me first talk a little bit about some of the things that are going on in the realm of free speech today. I've intentionally avoided, by and large, speaking my mind too directly on the whole Chick fil A controversy from one month ago. There are things that I've posted from others online. I think anybody who looks at the inappropriate conversations Facebook page or for that matter, follows me on Twitter at ic underscore greg, has a pretty good idea of where my thoughts are. The very day, August first, when Christians from all over the country were flooding Chick Fil A to make some sort of statement, a statement that I'm convinced a lot of those Christians don't fully understand themselves. Uh, what statement were they making? Well, it depends on who you ask. It varies from one quote-unquote believer to another. But on that day, I did intercept a quote from somebody that I have followed for quite some time, an author, and he said he didn't know whether this was a good or bad day for gays and lesbians, but it sure was a bad day for chicken, and just in regard to how many people were buying chicken sandwiches. And my response to him on Twitter was, it's also a bad day for Christians. This was a day that Christians stood up in an alarmingly large number and put a bunch of people in their place, Just exactly the way Jesus would never do. I find it to be heartbreaking and frustrating to a degree that I can't possibly describe. Part of it is political naivete. People just not understanding that the mayors in these select random cities didn't have the power that they made it sound like they had in their interviews. And even if they did have that power, they wouldn't possibly survive court challenges because it was a blatant First Amendment violation. But as I've talked about in recent inappropriate conversations, if you don't believe what the First Amendment says about freedom of speech and freedom to assemble and freedom of religion, well, then you really have a problem there, don't you, when it comes to believing what other people's rights are and where the limits of those rights are. So specifically, when it comes to Chick-fil-A, I've heard said on other shows shows that frankly have hit this topic you know, better than I'm going to, shows like Greetings from Nowhere. They have an episode called Chalk Full of Hate, where they hit the topic pretty, pretty straightforwardly. But to me, it comes down to this. The support that some Christians showed for Chick-fil-A can't be about free speech unless those same people are even more passionately supporting Fred Phelps and the Westboro Baptist Church. Because I'll tell you something about the philosophy the underlying worldview of Westboro Baptist Church and the statements and the money talks actions of the leadership of Chick-fil-A. It's the same philosophy. Essentially, you've got a worldview that, that life as we know it in Western societies will come to a complete halt, that everything will end. It will be tragic and disastrous if gays and lesbians are provided any kind of rights whatsoever, that they should be marginalized. The only difference between Westboro Baptist and Chick-fil-A, it comes on two fronts. First, the people at the Westboro Baptist Church are jerks about it. So you've got that going for you, that you might be able to make an argument that other things that Chick-fil-A does seem really nice and quaint and old-fashioned and Norman Rockwellian, for want of a better word, instead of what I would say is maybe somewhat George Orwellian. So you've got that. The other end of it is the military sort of aspect of their protest, where the uh, Phelps crowd has taken it one level further and decided that since the United States has already done things to recognize human rights on a you know grander scale than maybe what we did 100 years ago, that that's enough to say that the United States itself should be protested, and therefore the military should be protested. But what is going on? What's, what's happening when the Westboro Baptist Church people show up to protest at the funerals of dead soldiers. What are they protesting? Are they anti-military? No. These people are probably, you know, more conservative than your average neocon in the Republican Party. They're there to protest gay and lesbian rights. In other words, their philosophy is the same as Chick-fil-A's leadership. They're just expressing it in a, you know, somewhat more toxic way. They're Being less sneaky about it, less political about it, and more activistic about it. But if you want to stand up for free speech rights, you kind of have a choice here. Because between the leadership of Chick fil A and the leadership of the Westboro Baptist Church, one of those two groups actually has had the government itself step in and make an influential decision about the right to speak in public, the right to assemble at the very least, and perhaps free speech itself it's not Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A was just a big publicity stunt. And the mayors who made the statements that outraged so many people. Also, just a big publicity stunt. Politics, business as usual. But the Congress recently voted to pass a law, a law, by the way, that even though I'm somewhat uncomfortable with it, I think I'm going to have to support. The legislation essentially says that your rights to free speech are not necessarily abridged based on the place and the time In other words, at least to the degree that I would have envisioned it, it says that it's not a problem for you to make a protest at the same time a military funeral is going on, but the city, county, state has the right to ask you to do that protesting in another location. Your right to assemble is not being abridged. Your right to speak is not being abridged. But to create a public nuisance, it's not necessarily a right that is spelled out for you in the U.S. Constitution. Likewise, there's nothing that stops the Westboro Baptist Church from making a protest at the same location, as long as they do it at a different time. In other words, the right to assemble, the right to speak freely, does not give you the right to create confrontation. Now, I'm uncomfortable with the idea that a ruling like this seems to target a specific group but it is targeting a specific group that has absolutely asked itself to be targeted because this is a group that has demonstrated repeatedly that it's not interested in dialogue. It's not interested in discourse. It's not interested in learning and growing and developing an opinion. It is certainly not interested in compromise, but you know what? I don't see anything that was demonstrated on August 1st by a very large number of people professing to be Christians proudly buying chicken as Christians, or the Chick-fil-A organization, I don't see anything in any of that that represents those same concepts of learning from one another and creating a dialogue and finding compromise. So here's my point. If the philosophy is the same between Westboro Baptist Church and Chick-fil-A, then how on earth can we talk about supporting one and not the other? And if you find the other one just a little bit too toxic, perhaps a little bit too Un-Christian in their approach and their demeanor. Well, that tells you something that you need to know. Listen, the perspective of Christianity needs to be bigger here than it is. Christians talk about having a divine Creator, an Almighty God, a unique and gifted designer. If we want to talk about intelligent design and brilliant design we've got to weigh that head to head against whether or not it makes sense to suggest with everything we know about nature and with everything we know about human sexuality would an intelligent designer of a rich complexity so much that a lot of christians or at least scientists who are christians dismiss the idea that chance has anything to do with it how in the world can you then limit your worldview to two genders to two sexual orientations, when we've come face-to-face in years recently with people who've been honest enough to say, yeah, they don't fit that dichotomy at all, and that they're not alone. Perhaps throughout history, we've had people who did not fit that dichotomy. This is something that I think Christians need to ponder. Where does the evidence point? And does the worldview that Christians have maintained, ferociously, I would say, as recently as August 1st, is that consistent with this notion of a grand and complex design? Now, what in the world does this have to do with college football? Well, it has one thing in particular to do. It's probably harder to find a dozen companies who have been more public advertisers of college football, naming bowl games after themselves, etc., than Chick-fil-A. And one of the things I'm going to talk about a little bit is why I didn't record this sooner. Why didn't I get a a conversation going about college football before the season started. Well, first, I'm not looking to make a bunch of predictions. So this was never really about, you know, going out and saying I'm going to do a sports show. I want to talk in general about the concept of games being dramatic and drama without a script. But it's undeniable that Chick-fil-A has done a lot to promote this game that I love. And one of the things that happened just this weekend was one of the first games of the season. It used to be called the kickoff classic, where there'd be one college football game with two great teams playing each other. And really, that game probably this year was the game played in Dallas, Texas, between the Alabama Crimson Tide defending national champions and the Michigan Wolverines with a Heisman Trophy front runner at quarterback. But one of the other games played up on ESPN and advertised as, as a Chick-fil-A football game was between Auburn and clemson when you look at college football games played this week in this season opener for college football the week before the nfl begins in earnest you see a lot of very lopsided scores with you know powerful home team favorites playing against teams that they would never deign to play a return trip home and home at their stadium and scores ended up reflecting that 45 to 23 56 to 10 69-34, 49-20, 69-3, 84-0. sixty nine to thirty four forty nine to twenty sixty nine to three eighty four to nothing not easy to find a good exciting game in the mix and unfortunately, there were two kinds of exciting games exciting games where heavy favorites underperformed and started their season in a disappointing fashion. Penn state 's attempt to reinvigorate their football program ending with a 10-point loss at home to Ohio University is a good example of that. But the other one is this game, this Chick-fil-A game, turned out to be one of the better college football games of the weekend with Clemson winning 26 to 19 over an SEC team in Auburn. This is a game that I did not watch. And part of the reason I didn't watch it is that it is perhaps the most toxic sponsor of a football game I can remember in quite some time. It would be a little bit to me. Like BP suddenly becoming the host of a game in South Texas or in South Louisiana right after the oil spill. It just doesn't make sense. End up on a show where Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is up against Forbidden Planets, <laughs> and somebody just voted for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> Welcome to Game Fights, the Ponzi scheme of podcasting. I'm David Shaw. With me, as always, is Mr. Mike Ortiz. So what are we fighting about this time, David? Best sci-fi movie of all time. Best token minority. Best animated TV series. Listen. Geekfights.net. It was in the early 1990s, probably 1992 or 1993, and it was around Christmas time, perhaps between the holidays or maybe at this time of year back then, just before Christmas, when the Alamo Bowl was played. And I'm going strictly from memory here. I haven't done any fact-checking to look things up and confirm, but I believe it was a game between Texas A&M and the University of Michigan, and I was eager to see the game on TV. Because it was the Alamo Bowl was set in San Antonio, Texas, and San Antonio is one of my favorite cities. So even though the game is played inside a dome, the blimp of one variety or another will be up in the air, showing nighttime scenes. It is very unusual for a broadcast of the Alamo Bowl to not include footage of the Riverwalk area in San Antonio. So for nostalgia alone, I you know, really like seeing that game televised. But in this case, I was unable to do so. We were doing things around the house, a relatively new house. So whatever we were doing, it was something we were doing for the first time. Uh, Could it be related to putting the finishing touches on Christmas decorations before company came over? Were we in the process of taking things down? I don't remember. But what we were listening to instead of Christmas music on this particular night was the radio broadcast of the Alamo Bowl. And in particular, I was interested in hearing the game, not just because of it being set in San Antonio, but because of one of the broadcasters. Now, I do not consider myself to be a fan of Texas A&M or Michigan, but back then, more than now, I did try to watch, or listen to in this case, as many bowl games as I possibly could. College football has always been extremely disappointing to me because it doesn't have any sort of formalized playoff system. But in the absence of that, the bowl games have historically, at their best, been really good entertainment, and this was a good football game. And part of the reason that I was enthusiastic about listening even before I knew whether the game was going to play out to be exciting or not was because one of the announcers was Spencer Tillman. I've met Spencer Tillman. Spencer Tillman has been somebody who's been on an NFL roster, played for teams that have won Super Bowls, you know, not in a starring, you know, starting halfback role, but nevertheless playing minutes in playoff games and Super Bowls and earning himself, you know, a Super Bowl ring at least one. But I had met him before, and I really have always enjoyed every encounter I've ever had with Spencer Tillman. And though I don't tend to consume much in the Internet era, I don't tend to watch very many college football pregame shows. If you know ESPN is on-site at a campus where it's a, a university I care about, if it's a campus I've visited before, I might be interested in seeing scenes from you know, that live broadcast on location. But even then, I don't tune in and leave the TV on and keep myself riveted in front of it. To me, the Internet makes some of the pregame hype a little less necessary. But I still, from time to time, will stop at CBS, at least in the last few years, because I like hearing what Spencer Tillman has to say. Now, part of the reason that that's been so solidified for me is that Spencer Tillman is the first person I've heard say, but I'm relatively sure as an old cliche, that sports at its best is like drama without a script. Now, first, for me to offer any praise for Tillman at all is really making a statement, because I am perhaps defined as much by not being a fan of the University of Oklahoma as I am by being a fan of any team. I like Oklahoma State University, which explains the rivalry, and I like Nebraska, which even more explains the rivalry. If you're growing up in the Big Eight part of the country, At a time when Oklahoma was a powerful force, if the team that you follow the most closely, whether that be the Missouri Tigers, the Oklahoma State Cowboys, or the Kansas Jayhawks, is getting trounced soundly on an annual basis by the Sooners, often in a somewhat unsporting way, the Nebraska Cornhuskers' ability to stand toe-to-toe with them made it easy for you to be a secondary Nebraska fan. And I'm wondering if Nebraska doesn't have so many fans nationwide, truly, uh, you know, A lot of schools talk about their fan base traveling well, and that is certainly true of the Nebraska Cornhuskers, as it is true of the Ohio State Buckeyes and other teams. But Nebraska and Notre Dame have something a little bit closer in common with each other that a lot of other schools can't claim. And it's not just that Nebraska fans travel well, it's that Nebraska fans are already there, that there seem to be Nebraska fans who didn't go to the university, some of whom admittedly probably couldn't pick out Lincoln, Nebraska on a map who nevertheless are fans of the team and are quick to follow them when they show up nearby. The same thing can be said in perhaps an even bigger way for Notre Dame. So Nebraska fans, I think partly because of being the arch enemy of teams like Oklahoma and the Miami Hurricanes, you, know, you draw, draw a line between a commitment to sportsmanship and a commitment against sportsmanship, and you end up siding on the Nebraska side of things if you prefer a dignified you know, professional approach to the game, less trash talk, less in your face. I've spoken, I think briefly before, perhaps in another sports related show that I can remember working in a newspaper where the sports editor basically pulled me aside and gave me the, if you're not cheating, you're not trying speech of how important it was for a fan of Oklahoma athletics or big eight athletics to be very patient and tolerant. If, you know, if a guy like Brian Bosworth admits to spitting in the mouth and gouging out the eyes of, of running backs who are tackled in one of those big pileups that you should overlook that because if you're not cheating, you're not trying. So for me to be a fan of anybody who played a starring role at the University of Oklahoma is fairly staggering. And there are two players in the history of Oklahoma sooner football that I look to and I say, I don't really care what university you went to. You're clearly a class act and I want to you know follow your career even after the NFL one of them, the legendary tight end Keith Jackson, and the other one being Spencer Tillman. So, this quote from Spencer in a radio broadcast of The Alamo Bowl, Drama Without a Script, really resonated with me because I've been very blessed. I'm you know, married to a woman who enjoys sports as much as I do, and truthfully, on the playing field, more accomplished in the sports she participated in than I was. So, I've got it lucky, but every now and then I meet people where you can just tell that one of the two members of the relationship, be it the man or the woman, just doesn't get it, that there's something about the sports that just, they don't just, they don't compute. They don't make sense. And I have a lot of friends in other parts of my fandoms, uh, whether it be uh, Star Trek fandoms or foreign films, who just, the sports part doesn't click for them. There's a relatively small group of people that I interact with on a regular basis who I think would probably consider themselves equally to be fans of film, music, pop culture, books, and sports. But it's a small subset. Once you start bringing those lines together, you begin whittling out a lot of people, either because they do like sports, but they don't get all the sci-fi stuff, or they don't really get all the artsy stuff, or they're into a particular fandom like Star Wars or Star Trek. And, you know, football and soccer just don't do it for them. But to me, if you are a fan of, say, improvisation, whether that be comedy, whether it be theater or a film, for that matter, there's something to be said. There's a good connection to be made. And I'm going to try to make the connection briefly here on two fronts on this notion of drama without a script. One is the idea that the film editor is perhaps the most important craftsman if you want to word it that way, in the creation of film as art. The director may cast a vision, and the director and the cinematographer may have the, the eye for what's going on, but what makes film uniquely different from any other media is what's, what's happening inside that film editor's role. So that's kind of one of my biases. And the other bias is that there are very few television shows that I've enjoyed as much as Whose Line Is It Anyway?, in America, I, we would have seen this first as a Drew Carey vehicle with a lot of people that were familiar to us as actors on the Drew Carey show and, and even other sitcoms or even other stand-up performers. But even when you catch the British version, it's a show that I really enjoy because you can jump in at any point. Um, when I see a rerun of a show that I really like, like The Big Bang Theory or Friends or Seinfeld, there's a, that moment of disappointment when you realize that you've missed what came before that if you come in at the 15-minute mark, you you wonder, well, gosh, if only I'd seen this, if only I'd started when it started. And if you know the show by heart, and I've seen the Gilligan's Island series from when I was a kid so many times that you know the show by heart. It's not that you've, you're confused or lost. It's just that you know you missed out. I don't feel the same way about a show like Whose Line Is It Anyway? And I think perhaps from the perspective of a comedy improv program, that show did it as well as anybody. Well, I'm going to make the connection between this idea of comedy, or for that matter, even dramatic improv, being a fairly close analogy to what the world calls football or soccer. In soccer, you essentially have a two-act play. You have a beginning point, 45 uninterrupted minutes, and of course uninterrupted if a player gets hurt, if the ball goes out of bounds, but there's no timeouts in soccer. And so... When that whistle blows, there's 45 minutes of uninterrupted play. In fact, if a team, either due to injury or substitution, or frankly, just flat out stall tactics, tries to stop the game or interrupt the game or interfere with the flow of play, the minutes that the referee deems have been taken off the clock are put back on. It's one of the things that I think American sports fans find frustrating or find difficult to grasp is that. In soccer, in world soccer, the clock doesn't count down. It counts up, and the game doesn't end at the 45th-minute mark like the clock striking 45. It ends when the referee on the field says it ends, and it almost never ends in a situation where a player has made a kick to take a shot on goal. You never hear the whistle blown until the result of that kick is known. So the notion of running out of time is a little bit a little bit more fluid in the game of soccer. So you have that first half, second half perspective. There are moments when a coach can intervene by introducing a player. The coach can speak to players from the sideline as they pass by and even change formations. But truly, most of the work that the coach has done has been in the preparation for the game itself, for establishing the parameters of play. How many people are going to be forward? How many people are going to be in the back line? What shape will the midfield use in terms of its structure? Will it be a more defensively oriented, let's stop a powerful offensive opponent from being able to exert their will in our side of the field? Or will it be a more attacking sort of a formation where the midfield is aligned with the same number of players, perhaps as the other team, but they'll be deployed in such a way that the midfield is almost 100% designed on turning quickly in what would be soccer's equivalent of a fast break. But once the coach, you know, sets that strategy in motion, the whistle blows and and the game starts, it is truly more influenced by the players on the field or by the officials than anything the coach can do on the sidelines. It's why in the game of soccer, it's much, perhaps much less important than it is in a game like basketball. If a coach gets uh, dismissed and sent to the locker room for unsporting conduct on the sidelines, you know, it has less of a dramatic effect you might think. So I look at soccer as an improvisational game, and the most important thing about sports to understand is that and soccer is a great example of it. You don't necessarily know what's going to happen. You're watching something where it's not like a Tennessee Williams play you've read numerous times. It's not like a musical that you you've heard performed, you've seen on TV and you've got the album. You don't really know what's necessarily going to happen. The only clue you have is your sense of the skill and ability of the players. So in other words, if it's an episode of whose line it is, is it anyway? And Wayne Brady has a key role to play in this particular skit they're doing, or this particular task they're performing. Well, you do kind of have this idea that this could turn musical at any moment, that this guy is a talented singer. He has the ability to improvise musically as well as comedically. So you know that he's bringing that to the table. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you're going to see every time and it isn't predetermined. So I don't understand people who like improvisational comedy, uh, stand-ups who interact with the audience a lot, or you know even a free-flowing sort of stream of consciousness kind of a routine where you're watching a stand-up comedian and you're saying to yourself, I don't know, I don't know how they would turn this into a CD at all. Where would the track numbers start and stop? Where's the material is so organic and ingrained into the experience of that one night's show that it's almost inconceivable to think of where there's the bits. If you enjoy that, how do you not enjoy soccer? How can you not make the leap? Now, you know, you may prefer comedy to soccer. You may prefer musical performance, like a jam band, like The Grateful Dead to soccer. But there's a through line there where essentially sports being performance-related, but unscripted performance, there's a to me a really clear connection between what might happen if you were seeing one of those performers in concert that can just take requests on site. I'm going to use a couple of examples to sort of drive this home, and then I'm going to leave soccer and return to college football. I saw Todd Snyder in concert this summer. He's a different drummer, and for the first time in a while, uh, he's touring with a band. And I thought, wow, is this going to change? His flexibility because to me he's a legendary performer in my mind I, I, don't, I don't think it's fair to describe even as a different drummer Todd Snyder is legendary in the you know the consciousness of the culture but he, he's always gone as the the man with his guitar and his harmonica and basically able to take requests from the audience and shift gears on a dime because he's the only musician it's really easy I think in some ways to change plans to throw out your playlist to just take requests from the crowd, if it's just you and your guitar. But with a band, would it be different? And in some ways, no. In some ways, if you if you look online on Facebook or whatever and look at his playlist, there is a certain structure. There are some things which are true on every show. But the other thing I think you'll notice quickly, if you look, as I have, because I, I got a sense in the show that we were watching that he truly really was taking requests from the crowd. He was responding and his band was they're with them in lockstep fashion that, you know, each night show is very different that way. Now, of course, in the case of groups like Fish or The Grateful Dead or Widespread Panic, it's not just that each song list may be different each night, but they may morph in a pretty quickly, almost in a jam band way from one song to the next. And you never know whether they're going to, you know, create a medley that was not even planned by them at the start of the show. And that's what you kind of get from soccer. If a team starts off in a 4-4-2 formation with the idea of playing a fairly conservative game plan, you know, an injury, an unexpected injury from the other team can change all that in a heartbeat. And sometimes it's the coach on the sidelines seeing it happening and directing players to, you know, position themselves differently. But a lot of times it's just the ebb and flow of the game itself. Very, very close to an improvisational sort of a jam band kind of equivalency. Football in America, not quite the same thing. It's still drama without a script, I buy that, but it is more organized. It's scripted enough in the sense that there's a break between plays. The coach has much more influence over the game, including in many college football games that you'll see, the coach being responsible for calling every play. It's a fairly unusual thing and a beautiful thing when it happens to see two teams square off against each other with both an elaborate and thereby flexible offense and enough experience at the quarterback position that the coaching staff is willing to let the quarterback do a lot of the play calling and a lot of audibles, which are nothing more than just changing the play call to a different play. When you see that, what you see as a game, there's a lot more flow to it. The huddles are shorter, in some cases non-existent, and the players on the field are doing a lot more to dictate the flow of the game. But for the most part, When you think of American college football, especially historically, when you think of college football, you think of the team after a play getting together in a circular huddle and waiting for a player to come in or a signal from the sidelines to tell them what the next play will be. In that sense, it's directed, but it's directed, again, much like a theatrical work or a, a movie or a film where there may be a director. But there's still that level of uncertainty of saying, hey, you know what? You can have the greatest director in the world if the actors are completely untalented. If they didn't bother to learn their lines, you're not going to get the same result you would get if you had a relatively inexperienced or perhaps even novice director and a great deal of talent um, sort of, quote, unquote, out there on the field. And that's why this notion of drama without a script works so much better in college football than it does in professional football. Because at the professional level, I think you're, you're more in this sort of antiseptic situation where there's a, generally speaking, a higher level of quality in terms of the talent across the board, and therefore you're less likely to see the dramatic impact a mistake can make. Uh, one player missing an assignment in professional football can often lead to a big 30-yard pass completion down the field. But in college football, that same mistake is probably an 80-yard touchdown pass. It's that difference in the skill level. And for me, I understand people who prefer the National Football League as professional level of football to the college game, because perhaps there's a certain amount of reliance upon that consistency, that everyone is consistently good. That's why there's certain formations that don't work in professional football, because if your entire offensive scheme is built upon the idea that you can force the defensive end to make a decision and thereby make a mistake, well, in professional football, you can force him to make a decision, but it's very unlikely that you're going to force him to make a mistake. And it's even less likely that you're going to force him to make a mistake that the cornerback is going to exacerbate by making another mistake. Whereas in college football, sometimes a little misdirection goes a long way. And so I enjoy the college game because, I can latch myself on to a certain team. That might be a team like Oklahoma State or Ohio State or Oregon State. I like my OSU's. Or the University of Nebraska. I can remember as a young kid latching on to Georgia because my father and I were watching a game between Georgia and Georgia Tech, and that's just kind of the way it went. Neither one of us came into that game, me as a, especially not me as a very young child, with any bias. But just because of being impressed by what happened in that one ball game, When the annual game between Georgia and Georgia Tech would be repeated year over year, I would continue to side with Georgia. And, of course, when Georgia became a very strong college football team with the eventual Heisman Trophy winner, Herschel Walker, joining their roster, it became much even easier to cheer for Georgia because they were on television almost every week and they were, by and large, very successful. It's a little bit more like the film editor's role, if you think about it, where the film editor is going to have a script – And the director and the director of photography would have driven the shooting schedule. But the film editor is the one who's actually looking at several different takes of the same scene and making choices about how this particular cut of film is the one that's going to make it into the final movie, either based on sort of the uh, position of the actors, uh, one performance standing out, a general quality across the performances of everybody who's in the scene, Or it could be something different, something as simple as lighting, an unexpected cloud interfering with an outdoor scene, something of that nature. But you have that film editor who's taking that that game plan, taking that footage, and using it to decide, hey, this is what we're going to do in this particular play. College football is somewhat like that, and I cast myself as a fan watching on TV in that role of editor. And you probably know A football fan. If you're an American, you probably know a a football fan like me. The one who's sitting there on the couch or sitting there in the stands predicting what the next play is going to be, and perhaps even very frustrated if the screen pass I wanted us to throw wasn't called and we decided to go deep downfield instead. I'm the guy giving you a million reasons why the screen was the better play in that situation. The secondary was ready for that long down and out. It, it, the post pattern is not open and it's not going to be open until we establish the run game. That sort of idea. Well, you know, we wouldn't tolerate that sort of behavior from somebody who was sitting in the crowd at a musical. Nobody wants anybody in the stands speaking to their, you know, their friend or anyone around who will listen about how Christian Chenoweth should have sung that note this way in this scene. But it works in college football, partly because it isn't scripted. There's enough of a, of a format to go on. There's enough framework there. You know what the quarterback's supposed to do. You know which running backs are, you know, strong physical inside runners, which ones have the breakaway speed, which gives you a little hint as to whether or not you maybe as a fan think we should have different personnel in the game, or whether or not this, pers- this particular runner needs a fullback in front of it. He's going to do better if there's a blocker leading him through that particular hole in the defense, or the hole you hope is there in the defense. But, so it's different from that perspective. But every time a game starts, there is, at least in theory, no guarantee as to how it's going to end. Some of the most dramatic things I've ever seen before, we're not on stage and we're not in film. I had been in the stands for what I, at that time in my life, had been the biggest comeback in football history. It would soon be topped with the same coach on the losing side of both of those games. And, of course, it has since been topped. And it's part of the reason that I have a standard where I believe that if a team has a 29-point lead or even a 30-point lead, even if it's a 30-point lead in the second half, that they should not be pulling their starters They should not be running the ball up the middle on every play and trying to drown out the clock. They've got to keep playing as if they need scores, because I've seen teams blow a 30-point lead in the second half. And if it can happen once, it can happen again. One of the most legendary examples in the NFL might have been one of the teams Spencer Tillman was playing for. He turned in minutes for the San Francisco 49ers and for the Houston Oilers, and I'm not sure at what time he was on the Houston team. But he may have been part of the Houston Oilers team that had a 35-point halftime lead against the Buffalo Bills and went on to lose that playoff game. Doesn't get much better than a playoff come from behind victory. And of course, in this case, if you're an Oilers fan, it doesn't get more devastating. That is probably the most devastating loss in playoff history. You know, you just don't get a 35-point lead in the playoffs that often, and it is staggering to lose it. I was in the stands once for a game between Oklahoma and Oklahoma State. Where the Oklahoma State home team playing on their own field was leading with about nine and a half minutes to play by the score of 20 to 3. And it didn't really feel like it had been that close. I think there were probably a lot of Oklahoma State fans there that day who felt like the lead should have been bigger, that Oklahoma was making enough mistakes, that the margin should have been greater. They couldn't have been more right because it only took a few fluky things to happen along the way for the Sooners, who were perhaps the better known, maybe even the more talented team to get right back into it. Oklahoma scored and had lined up for, you know, what you could justify seeing an onside kick as early as eight minutes to go. It seems a little desperate. Usually that onside kick where the kicking team, instead of kicking it deep to the other team, tries to kick it and recover it in the same play. You usually see that with less than two minutes to play because it isn't inherently risky play. It's a desperate move with, with high risk, high reward, but the risk is more likely to be true. In this case, though, the Sooners kicker did not intentionally try to kick the ball in such a way that the uh, Oklahoma team could recover. He was squibbing it instead. Now, a squib is the notion of not kicking the ball high and deep in hopes of either putting it in the end zone where it can't be returned or kicking the ball high enough that your defenders have enough time to get downfield and prevent a long run back. A squib instead is where the ball is kept fairly low to the ground and hopefully bounces around a lot. And even though it's unlikely you're going to recover it if you kick the ball 30, 40 yards downfield that way, it's also unlikely that their best, your, your opponent's best returner is going to get the football. In fact, whoever gets the football may just land on it because in a kickoff, it's a live ball. Whoever recovers it has it. And in this case, one of those squib kicks just bounced funny and hit one of the Oklahoma State players on the front line maybe even in his helmet or his face mask, because it took a 20-yard rebound back the other direction. With The only players with any hope of recovering it were the Oklahoma players. The ball actually went behind everybody, including the Sooners, but it didn't take long for one of the Sooner kick defenders to backtrack and recover the ball. That enabled them to score again, and to make this long story short, the final score in that game was Oklahoma 21, Oklahoma State 20, and in nine and a half minutes, what seemed like a commanding 17-point lead from the home team, dissolved completely. Jimmy Johnson was the coach of that Oklahoma State team, and it was, I believe, his last year with the program, or his next to the last year at the program, he would move and take a more high-profile position with the uh, University of Miami, coaching the legendary Miami Hurricanes during the Miami U era. If you watch ESPN 30, 30 documentaries, you know the time frame that I'm talking about. But things were not always high and mighty for Miami during that period. At that time, Jimmy Johnson's first or second year, Miami suffered what was the biggest come from behind loss in the history of college football. They led, I believe, 31 to nothing at halftime and lost the game by a point. I don't have the data in front of me, but I'm going to say it's probably 42, 41. The University of Maryland, not regarded as college football power, playing at the Orange Bowl again the home team with the big lead and blowing it. In this case, you know, not a 17-point lead, more of a 30-31-point lead, and to blow it. The common denominator, of course, between this legendary NFL game for uh, the Buffalo Bills overcoming a huge deficit against the Houston Oilers and the Maryland Terrapins team overcoming a huge deficit against the Miami Hurricanes was the backup quarterback. In each case, Frank Reich not as the starter, but as the substitute, came off the bench midway through the game and improbably led the team back, led the upset team to victory. Now, because I was aware of college football history, because I understood the players and the personnel, when I was watching that NFL game on television and seeing what was going on between the Buffalo Bills at home and the Houston Oilers on the road, I knew that the backup quarterback for Buffalo was Frank Reich. And I may have been one of the few people in the entire country. I know it was the only person in my house who honestly believed that Buffalo was going to come back and win that football game. But I just had a sense from the personnel on the field, much like having a sense that if this skit has Wayne Brady in it, it might involve song, that there was a chance that a player with an unbelievable amount of confidence as a backup, with the experience of bringing a team from behind in his favor could rally the troops in such a way that that kind of huge improbable upset victory could occur. It's drama without a script because the things that happen don't always make sense. And for those of us who watch sports week after week, year after year, what brings us back to what some people might consider to be a boring game is the fact that literally at any moment, Anything can happen. And if you understand enough of the framework, if you know on a show like Whose Line Is It Anyway, what the game is, if you understand the rules, how the props are supposed to be used, who's allowed to speak and who's allowed to pantomime, if you know that, then everything comes perfectly into play. And it all makes sense. If I'm going to celebrate the start of the college football season, and if I want to talk about a different drummer that I have some sort of connection with, it makes sense to me to talk about Tom Osborne as a coach of the Nebraska team that I began following as a very young kid initially because I needed to cheer for somebody who had the ability to beat this Oklahoma Sooners team that I just didn't like the attitude. More of their fans than of their players, truth be known. But I mean, we got Barry Switzer as a coach. You've got one coaching style on the sidelines at the University of Oklahoma, and you've got this fandom with this if you're not cheating, you're not trying mentality. Tom Osborne, as a coach, presented a completely different vision. And through a great deal of trials and frustrations over a career that spanned four decades, you've got a coach who, to my mind, set a standard for doing it the right way that I don't think we're going to see again. And in fact, A year and a half ago, if I'd mentioned that Tom Osborne was a coach who'd set a standard of doing things the right way from a sportsmanship perspective, somebody probably would have offered a not-so-fast. Tom Osborne isn't better than Joe Paterno. My perspective on that, of course, is game set and match. Tom Osborne began his coaching career at the University of Nebraska as a graduate assistant in 1964. This means that roughly there was a point in my life when I could have said that Tom Osborne had been coaching in one capacity or another at the University of Nebraska my entire lifetime. He became offensive coordinator in 1969 and immediately turned around what had been a couple of years of lackluster performance into a team that eventually won the national championship during his tenure as offensive coordinator. He took over as head coach in 1973. I'm sure a lot of the fans at the time anticipated that The man who had come up with the offensive vision and had the persuasive power, despite being a soft-spoken individual, of leading players of all ages and all levels of experience to follow his vision and execute his vision. I'm certain that a lot of folks expected national championships to follow in quick succession. After all, you'd had one phenomenally successful coach in Bob Devaney moving permanently into the athletic director role and leaving behind his protege, Tom Osborne there was a good clean handoff with very little change in continuity. Perhaps one of the things that might have uh, wrinkled that or thrown a wrench to it was the the re-arising of the Oklahoma Sooners as a football power in the Big Eight. And time and time again, the Big Eight, often jokingly referred to as the Big Two and the Little Six, would come to a game near the end of the year, Thanksgiving weekend, where in conference play, at least, an undefeated Oklahoma team and an undefeated Nebraska team would be playing winner take all for what at the time was a trip to the orange bowl, but could just as easily be viewed as a, you know, an opportunity to play for the national championship because the national championship in college football remains to this day, essentially a mythical thing. And all you really have to do is perform well in any one of the bowl games. And you have a chance of getting enough votes to be named number one at the end of the year that may change in a year with the new tweaks that have happened, the four-team playoff model that is going to go into effect, but we'll see. I remain cynical of all things related to the postseason in college football. Perhaps ironically for a show that's all about blending together politics, sex, religion, pop culture, I don't want to speak about Tom Osborne's political career in this different drummer segment. It's simply a matter of me being unfamiliar with it. To me, Tom Osborne is perhaps the greatest college football coach of all time. Certainly, you can't name five without mentioning Tom Osborne, at least um, for the consideration of being in that, that handful of the best of the best. But the other thing I want to do that's a little bit ironic is I want to talk about perhaps what may be widely perceived as Tom Osborne's biggest public failing as a coach. So I'm not going to deal with the run of national championships in the 1990s with the undefeated teams, with the seemingly now historic thrashing of Florida in one fiesta bowl, if you look at the success of Florida and the SEC since then, that Nebraska victory looks all the more incongruous. No, I'm not going to speak to any of those. What I want to speak to instead is what we could probably refer to with uh, you know a grandiose term like saga, the Lawrence Phillips saga. Now, I'm not sitting here with a lot of information in front of me, and most of the things that we heard at the time... We're still involving open case law and things that were playing out in the court system. So let me wrap one huge allegedly around everything I'm about to say, not because I think that there's any question about the truth of the accounts, but because I'm not trying to cite police documents. I'm I'm going from memory to a certain extent. But Lawrence Phillips was one of those players who brought to the university a great deal of athletic talent and some question marks, perhaps, about character perhaps even question marks about strength in academics. This is perhaps the number one most public failing of college football that the best most talented players, the ones with the big, you know, future prospects in professional football, are at times among the ones that are least equipped to be on a college campus. And it's always a big, you know, struggle for some players to make the adjustment to doing well enough in classes to justify their continuing to be quote-unquote student athletes where in some cases a lot of them don't get degrees at all or can only get degrees by returning to school later because it's simply too much to ask to be a player. The practice schedule that's still in place today in college football was probably worse decades ago in terms of the number of hours committed to practice versus the hours committed to study. But in the case of Lawrence Phillips, the real issue was antisocial behavior. Now anybody who has you know, seen this story before knows how this plays out will understand that based on Phillips' performance in the NFL, he had serious issues with anger management and with authority. And Tom Osborne, although vilified at the time for failing to control this player, perhaps did a better job than anybody after him did. And who knows, for all we know, maybe he did a better job than anybody before him as well. There was a, an arrest on a domestic violence claim where Lawrence Phillips had assaulted a girlfriend. And by all accounts, again, no one challenging the credibility of the account of the girlfriend in question that I think that if any one of us had witnessed what had been described, we would have been aghast. And you could certainly understand a coach simply dismissing the player from the team. I have seen instances as, again, a casual football fan of coaches doing just that, cutting bait and run. But I've also seen instances with coaches that I think are people with high personal integrity where they've chosen not to do that. And this was one of those examples. What Osborne did with Lawrence, Lawrence Phillips, though, was unique at the time. You would tend to see coaches either make excuses for players and leave them fully functioning on the roster, or you would see coaches that dismiss the player altogether. What Osborne did that was, again, somewhat out of the ordinary, perhaps not unprecedented, but somewhat out of the ordinary, was set conditions. You will cooperate with the authorities. You will f- fulfill all the obligations of your, of your probation. You'll make whatever restitution is deemed necessary. You will continue to attend classes and make grades as a student athlete. You will continue to participate in select team functions that you won't uh, you know, drop the ball when it comes to paying attention to what's being done schematically and sort of in the classroom part of football practice. And if you do all of these things well, then when we get to a bowl game, I'll let you play. If you do any one of those things badly, then you're done. Now, for many people, throwing out this carrot... Giving a guy like Lawrence Phillips a way home was an absolute abomination. But for me, it was the difference between giving somebody the incentive he needs to become at least a somewhat productive member of society from a a professional football player perspective versus not Lawrence Phillips complied with all of the things that were being asked of him. And he did not just play, but I think he started in the bowl game that year. His presence on the field is a lightning rod of controversy. There are some for whom nothing short of the death penalty would have been appropriate when, you know, realistically, let's be honest, we don't have a death penalty for the crimes that he was accused and charged and convicted of, of committing. I was called a hypocrite for speaking positively about the approach that Osborne had taken. Now, why the charges of hypocrisy? Well, I've been critical before on several occasions for many years About other coaches, other coaches inside the same conference, as a matter of fact, who had looked the other way, covered up, obfuscated, stalled, and left players on the field who'd been accused of much more serious offenses. Rapists, people who'd stolen the answers to finals and thereby forged their college credentials. Other sorts of felonious assault, stealing, not just stealing from classmates, but stealing from teammates, Uh, These sort of things, which you would think would drum a player out of a football team, no matter how talented he was. I've been very critical of teams in the past for not kicking those players off their roster or for not doing something about their behavior. And here we are now that the the team that I follow, the Nebraska Cornhuskers, have had a serious legal issue with a star player. That player wasn't getting kicked off the team. Was I not a hypocrite? I think I would have been a hypocrite if I had been moaning about the fact that the player wasn't starting on the intervening games. But he missed well over half the year and his absence threw the offense into a bit of a, you know, let's take the red shirt off a player that we otherwise weren't going to play this year, sort of a quandary. And there was questions at the time of whether, you know, taking, you know, your leading rusher out of a running football team would endanger your chances of even of even getting to one of those key New Year's Day kind of bowl games. But the difference between Osborne's approach was rather than getting the teacher to pretend that the test wasn't stolen, rather than ignoring the drugs found on the player, rather than paying off the victim of an assault, whether it be a sexual assault or a physical assault, to not press charges. In this case, Osborne did the opposite. He said, no, 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 number one, Whatever the legal system is going to do, it's going to do, and you as a player are going to cooperate, or you're off my team. And in the meantime, you're going to be off my team. You're going to be off my roster until you do the things that need to be done to make yourself right with society, with the university, with anyone you've hurt, and with your fellow teammates on the squad. This is one of the things that made Osborne different. Tom Osborne went from being a head coach in 1973 all the way into the mid-1990s before he won his first outright national championship. After getting a lot of credit for being the offensive coordinator that turned the offensive side of that team around and, and getting Bob Devaney his last national title before he retired to the AD role, that was, you know, something like, you know, 20, 25 years went by. It's hard to imagine another coach in college football today unless you were You know, as legendary a coach in as legendary a position as Joe Paterno had been before he died, it's hard to imagine another coach getting the kind of patience from the school. Now, he won at least nine and usually ten games every single year, was playing in one of the best bowl games every single year, but not winning the big one. It's not hard to imagine a school losing patience with a coach who's almost good enough to get you there. I mean, showing up in the Final Four of the men's basketball tournament every year is is a good thing to do, unless you never win it. And that's kind of where Osborne was. I think the University of Nebraska had a special relationship with Tom Osborne going all the way back to 1964. And perhaps that legacy was very helpful in buying him the time that he needed. And for a lot of people who analyze college football, they would be quick to say that Osborne changing his recruiting style And bringing in players who didn't necessarily reflect the Christian values that he personally tried to represent was a risk he had to take in order to get over the hump. That he needed just that little bit more strength, that little bit more speed, that little bit more skill position, as they call it. And then with that, you take the risk that some of those players who've been set aside and treated differently all the way through junior high school and high school because of their athletic ability – might carry with them some antisocial tendencies. Nebraska went from a team that very rarely had issues with the authorities to a team that now has probably the same kind of issues with authorities on an annual basis that all the other big-time college football programs have. But when really it hit the fan, when it got at its very worst moment, Osborne treated that situation differently than everybody else. He was willing to sacrifice wins, sacrifice glory, sacrifice national titles, to do the right thing. And that's a quality that we could very much do with seeing a lot more often in a lot more corners, not just of college football, not just of college athletics, but of sports in general. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. The website has show notes with comments enabled at www.inappropriateconversations.org. Thanks for listening.